Hello, Harry. Hi, hi, everybody. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, for everybody, for, for joining us. And a big a big thank you to Rough Trade and to White Rabbit and Orion for, for doing the, doing all this and setting it up. So um, I just wanted to say thank you, Harry, for the book, because it's brilliant. I really love it. I mean, just from a personal point of view, I think the first thing we need to say is what, what, a, what a wonderful book, joining joining the dots that some of some of us have seen but coming together comes together with a completely new picture so um um when i when i spoke to you earlier or we were in touch earlier so i'm not going to sort of try and do forensic questions but i think it'd be nice to tease some of the some of the themes and hopefully you could talk yeah, about yeah, aspects sure. of the book as you do it but yeah. i was going to actually start off by asking what your story what where you came from what what was yeah. little harry's roots in uh, young harry's roots in music well, where did you from? If, if we're going right back really really metal you know I, I, I suppose my earliest musical memory was buying a tape of killers the iron maiden album from cambridge market when i was about nine and i chose that one because eddie was the biggest on that one you know the monster was the biggest so you know um so i was really into i was really into metal i still am you know it's um got into techno and dmb and so on in my in my teens you know spent a lot of time djing and raving and you know in the free party scene we've got quite a big kind of free party scene here in cambridge and um then just you know just got more more and more involved had had kids kind of when i was relatively young about sort of 26 had my first son and then kind of i was i was still involved in music i was i was i was um running a monthly community radio show um, on a station called 105 in Cambridge doing drum and bass and started writing for the quietest really and just um, just writing about what I was interested in which was the kind of weirder the weirder end of metal the weirder end of electronic music I guess and um, in terms of the book the genesis for monolithic undertow really comes from a festival in the Netherlands called Roadburn in a place called Tilburg and um, it's the kind of epicenter really for doom metal and stoner rock but it's quite it's quite an eclectic program you can see everyone from you know Russell Haswell to Diamanda Gallus there or weird folk music they've got all kinds of music um, but I was watching a band called Bong Ripper and um, it was just this feeling of immense ceremonial power you know there was like 5,000 people there everyone was kind of head banging really slowly and it's just had this feeling of really special. Roadburn's a very special place. It's people take their music very seriously there. There's not much of this kind of milling around between rooms. People tend to stay put for the whole show and, you know, they, they take it quite seriously. And on the way out, a friend of mine turned to me and said, you know, it's like the Wailing Wall in there. And, um, you know, it really was. It was that kind of feeling of, of, um, of almost kind of, almost a religious reverent feeling. And I was originally going to write about doom metal. I was originally going to write a history of doom metal. Um, but thinking more deeply about the music, I've been covering Doom and Stoner Rock for many years, you know, um, and just thinking more deeply about the attributes of the music, everything led back to the drone, you know. So like if, you, if you have to sum up, what, what is it that makes Doom Metal special? What is it that makes that music so powerful? Well, it's the use of the riff, circling repetitious riffs, and it's also the use of sustain. The drone. So I started to kind of think more deeply about the drone and other other places that the drone is found, other musics, other cultures, and it led me on a far wider, far broader path than I originally envisaged, really. So that's really that's really interesting. Because one of the questions I was gonna ask right at the end was, and you sort of answered yeah. it in a strange way, is you know, if drone was a place, where would it be? And <laughs> obviously, when you read the book, the first thing that, without me saying it, was thinking that's a great question. Uh, somewhere around the ball, centered around somewhere around the ball ring in Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that, yeah. that was so. It that it was it was in those it was in those genes, wasn't it? It was in those Absolutely those the roots yeah. were in there already. That's yeah. so yeah. that that's interesting that it yeah. it came fr from that point. I'm going to pick up on something that, that you said, and I know the Tilburg stuff. I think Wrangler did one weird show there. I remember going to a, a club was thing that afterwards. Was Rose Burn, or, or, Sorry, yeah, I think, I don't know, I can't remember the festival, but I remember it, and I remember going to a night afterwards, and it was some of the, 
most brilliant stuff. It, it was indescribable kind of this club music and it was just like a, it was just kind of an industrial throb, but it had that real kind of just driven by the low end. And obviously that's yeah. that's kind of the sound of that festival and it's kind of draws yeah, it all in. Great place. Yeah. It's a very special place, you know. It's, a, it's just, there's a freedom, I think there's a freedom in the Netherlands. You know, it's a, it's a palpable freedom. You, you, you pick up on it in, you know, in Amsterdam and you certainly pick up on it in Tilburg. You know, it's, uh, I, I love it. Absolutely love it, yeah. It's worth, actually, I'd written something at the top of this bit of paper I've got, and it just says ritual. And you kind of referred to to, to it there in the sense that we'll pick on, up on this as we talk for the next, yeah. you know, over the next period. But did such a sense of ritual kind of attends the, you know, the... I'm, I'm, it's, it's funny you call it the drone, but it's so all-encompassing, isn't it, really? Yeah. But yeah. there is an aspect of it that that is very ritualistic, isn't it? That draws us in that kind of, you know, almost transcendental part of it. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. that's obviously, that that's a thread that runs through the book as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's a thread that runs through through any pretty much any music that, that makes use of the drone. But it also it runs through theology, it runs through spirituality. I mean, there's a good example of this, and I write about this in the book, is the, the, the use of the drone in the Om chant, you know, the sacred Om. Um, to Buddhists and Hindus, that's the sound of the universe. The, the every, everything that has been, that will be, that's going to be springs from the Om, from the drone, you know. And then there's the concept in Hindu theology called Nada Brahma, which roughly translates as sound is God. Um, and I, I actually, I interviewed a, a, a guy, a sitarist called Darimba Singh, and he, he kind of explained the significance of the Om and of the drone. I'd, I've if I could just read a, what he said, because he, he puts it perfectly, really, and it's um, the way he describes it. Um, he says, you need to understand the concept of creation in order to understand the drone and its significance. Indian thinking is rooted in the idea of the one, the one manifested in the many, the totality of white light refracting into colours, colours refracting back into white light. That's the significance, non-duality. The whole of creation is the same thing. Om is the representation of the one. The whole bedrock of creation is in sound, the concept of Nada Brahma. Om is the significance. So whatever we do, medicine, music, anything, we never forget the basic fact that everything is interconnected. So that's that's the way he described it. And that's just, you know, that's one example. It's 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 there in Christian theology. Every major religion has some form. Of drone tradition, it's kind of it's kind of uncanny. The more you the more you look, the more you find. You know, it, it's really funny because you you talk about the the kind of universal nature of it all, and it was some. Right. I mean, when we when we were kind of in touch a few days ago, I mean, I yeah. mentioned the idea of the drone seems to capture us from birth, from the womb, but yeah. it also it's a, and it's through to infinity. Yeah. It's got it's from that it's from the seat of creation right through. Yeah, infinity to the universe, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's kind of—it's the connective tissue, isn't it? Almost it's of, of what it's, we are. It's—it's it's really interesting you pick up on that because the, the womb—we think of the womb as being this kind of quiet, cerebral space. It's actually not. It's actually really loud down there. It's, it, there was a study done—I think it was Stanford University um, in 1990, where they measured womb sound in utero, and it was 88 decibels. So the baby, the fetus in the womb, is picking up sound levels at 88 decibels, which is roughly the same kind of volume as a car wash. So it's really loud down there. And there's two main sounds they're picking up. They're picking up the drone of the maternal blood and they're picking up the maternal heartbeat. Those are the sounds that they're picking up loud. So I think from day dot, we've got an affinity really to the drone and to the 4-4 beat, you know? Those are the foundation. <laughs> <laughs> that's i'll come back to that later because I'm, I'm interested in the idea of the corollary of the drone but i'm going to keep on that because mm -hmm. on the idea of that because it is it's kind of it feels like our connection to it is not only through our capillary system but also our nervous system this it something, yeah. it's the connection of it it's that continuity and that universe universal yeah, yeah, nature yeah. of it isn't it and it's weird when, when i'm sure you, you you must have had this when you've been recording at times you, I, I recently went to do the audiobook I was in this tiny little studio and it was really acoustically what's known in, as an acoustically dead space you know of all the all the padding everywhere and it was just it was strange because you can hear your body in a way that 
you don't usually hear it, you know? And it's like, it was really kind of unnerving. And it, it was fine once I got talking, but just for the first few minutes, it was like, this is strange, you know? And it's, I think I quote John Cage in the book. He, he talks about an experience he had in the Harvard University anechoic chamber, which is, yeah. historic, I think, supposedly the, the most acoustically dead space in the world. And he went there in, I think it was in the 1950s. Yeah. He was amazed by the sound of his own body and it had a really profound effect on him. Some people can only stay in that place for like 20 minutes. It's, 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 it has quite a significant kind of psychological effect, but it had a really strong effect on him. Just the idea that, you know, his body was making his, its own kind of mini, mini symphony, you know? I think, yeah. I think for Cage as well, it was the root, it was one of the roots of listening for him. It was like that, that awareness, you know, obviously he did full front 33, he did every, all those things. But I think that the, the, the experience that you had that you talked about when he did hear his nervous system, and yeah. that sound that internal sound of the body so it's that that i guess that's the thing with the drone it actually breaches that thing it's the internal and the external sound isn't it as well yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely. If, you know think about the kind of the external drone you know we're surrounded by we're surrounded by a sustained tone pretty much from the moment we wake up and you know it's something i talk about a little bit in the book is that you know that feeling of when you've got a power cut all of a sudden you're plunged into a silence that you weren't aware of before you you you, you thought your house was quiet all of a sudden it's like oh now it's really quiet you know it's a strange feeling so yeah and and what struck me as we're talking and it's i, I don't mean to unnerve people because i think so many of us suffer of, or experience of it and some people suffer yeah. from it and i really have that but it uh i find it quite comforting but tinnitus i, I mean i do have I tinnitus do. I, and yeah. i it's that it's that kind of there's almost a comforting sound that you switch in and out of i don't find it distra yeah. i haven't found it distressing for years it's kind of that internal sound. It's like it's a constant yeah. sound that we take with us. So you know, have the sound of the body. You had it for long. How long? How long have you had it? Um, I think a pr mm, I've listened to too much loud music, too many yeah. loud monitor systems, but particularly yeah. from DJing for many years because I DJed for quite a long time, and I think yeah. just that close proximity. But it's actually, yeah. and I and I don't want to be flippant about it because I do have have friends who who do suffer quite badly with it. Yeah. But it, it is that constant sound, and it, it, there is a connection between that and, and yeah. this idea of how we connect to these kind of almost kind of the the, the comforting balm of of these sounds. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It, it's interesting. It can be it can be a comforting thing, but it can also be quite a stressful thing. You know, the the idea of white noise and, and you know background noise. Actually, actually, you know, Chris Chris Watson. Um, I quote quote Chris in the book. He's, he's talking about um, the idea of of the modern open plan office and what it does to people psychologically because there's no there's no respite from the noise it's not just it's not just the, you're visually on display all the time you know the idea being that the boss can see what you're doing where, wherever and whenever but you know you've you've got that constant low level noise and it's it, it really does cause a quite significant raise in you know cortisone levels so yeah it's yeah, and I always listen to what Chris tells me, so I'm not daft. <laughs> <laughs> Even now, after all these years. I'm going to talk a little bit about yeah. the, the book itself. And I suppose the thing is you draw together. I talked about the dot, dots joining to create a completely new picture for us. But in terms of that connection, uh, the, did I've, I've referred to it as a taxonomy of drones but yeah, did yeah. you see that you did you see kind of ways you could compartmentalize it and actually yeah. move between those kind of i guess sort of aspects of it or different kind of you know yeah I, I, of it? I, was, I was quite conscious of the fact that that this is this is one path through the drone this is my path through the drone another writer may have taken a completely different one it's it's a huge huge subject and um I wanted to roughly end where I began, which is with doom metal and stoner rock and Sabbath and so on. You know, I wanted it. I wanted it to come full circle, but I also wanted to make sure that the beginning of the book had enough, you know, background information, you know, to give people a, a, a an idea of the breadth of the subject. You know, the, the the idea that it's actually a universal, a universal presence, really. So. Um, but in terms of in terms of a pathway through the 20th century underground, a fairly clear pathway emerged, really, which was the New York axis. So Lamont Young, 
Theatre of Eternal Music, obviously John Cale and Angus McLeese played with Lamont Young for years, doing quite extreme dronal music um, before they joined the Velvet Underground. And then you've got the path from the Velvets through to the first Stooges record. You know, John Cale produced the first Stooges record. The Stooges were a huge influence on well, everyone, but you know, Black Flag and Flipper and so on, who were a huge influence on the Melvins, who fed into like bands like Neurosis and I Hate God and Sun and so on. So there was there was quite a clear pathway there from the New York underground. But then the other side of it was was the the influence of Indian music and the the idea of people all of a sudden taking acid for the first time in the early 1960s and listening to Indian music for the first time, often at the same time. I mean, you've got, you know, um, a good example would be George Harrison, um, The Grateful Dead, you know, the, these, the birds, they were all really into Ravi Shankar and they were, I think when people were doing acid in the 60s, they were looking for sounds which made sense of an experience that was perhaps too cranially overwhelming to, to just leave be, you know, and the drone really feeds into that. It feeds into that massively because, as many people know, when you when you take acid, one of the first things that happens is you have auditory as well as visual hallucinations. Sound becomes elongated, so previously stayed rhythms even take on a kind of dronal quality of their own. So it made perfect sense that people doing acid for the first time, totally overwhelmed by this experience. I mean, that, it's funny because nowadays, you know, if people are doing the hallucinogens now. They're kind of doing it with 40, 50 years of psychedelic knowledge behind them. They, they might not know what to expect, but they know that there's a serious history there. In the early 60s, it was very different. There was, you know, you were doing it for the first time and it was like you were going from grey to technicolour, you know, and the people were looking for something to, that spoke to that, you know. So, so that was another big side of it, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose you touch on that idea uh, of really about the about synesthesia and the drone is very much a, a kind of i suppose an eight a catalyst for that isn't it in the fact that our ability to kind of see these sounds and visualize and yeah. give them material form almost don't they and, and drugs yeah. and drugs help us do that it's funny actually it was another one of the stupid questions at the end was if you know if the drone's a drug what is it and the easy answer would i guess would be it's a narcotic you know and so everyone would say morphine or whatever but it's not is it the thing is that it lent there are so many kind of different kind of states of mind that it reinforces and what you know actually lubricates the, those states of mind as well so it works in so many different spaces and frames of mind just states of mind it does, and I'd, 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 you know, I'd definitely emphasise you, you, you absolutely don't need to be under the influence of anything at all for it to have a fairly extreme psychoactive, psychoactive effect. I mean, you know, um, anyone that's been to see Sun or Hawkwind or Earth or, you know, any number of bands that make use of, of sustained tones played incredibly loudly will know that it absolutely screws with your sense of time perception, you know. Um, so the drone, the drone in and of itself has a psychoactive effect. I think one of the reasons for that is that what we're doing when we're, we're making music with sustained tone is essentially removing the traditional markers of time. So we're removing the verse chorus verse structure. We're removing melodic progression. You know, we're removing all of these moments in time that we can hang our, um, expectation onto you know you know what it's like when you go and see if you go and see like a stadium rock show if you go and see a band like iron maiden you know i'm a huge iron maiden fan if you go and see maiden the whole thing's predicated on moments of communal tension and communal release you know precisely when the bridge is coming you know precisely when the chorus is coming you're in a room with fifty thousand people and you know pretty much damn well what everyone around you is thinking and feeling you go and see a band like some it's a completely different experience you know, you don't have those collective moments of communal tension and release. Everyone's kind of locked in their own world, as it were. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. You know, it's it, it's a very personal thing. It's a per, it's about uh, for me anyway. It's in and for a lot of people, it's about a kind of personal connection to ritual. You know, that's not necessarily tied to 
any kind of formal theology or formal liturgy, but that's profound and real. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on some of the things that you were talking about there in terms of that kind of, I guess, process of set making sounds. But while we're talking, while we're talking about sun, I feel it kind of feels as though they're they're very much a central kind of core to, to the book, mm-hmm. and perhaps that's because they exist now and somehow seem to encapsulate why the drone, why now, there's some this massive kind of currency about about them, they encapsulate yeah. it. Do you, do you feel that at the moment? This, this, there, the, I was gonna say, why now, why the drone? Why is it yeah. working? Why is it, ca- why is it connecting with people? And some seem to, ca- seem to be pivoting yeah, in that somehow. They do. I think it's really, it's interesting you pick up on, on Sun specifically. I think the reason, the reason they have connected with people on such a profound level is firstly, firstly that the music is is obviously superb, and secondly, the visual side is really important too. It's like they decided fairly quickly that what they were doing live originally in the late nineties just wasn't working. I spoke to Greg Anderson for the book, and he describes a very awkward early tour that they did supporting Orange Goblin and for anyone that doesn't know who Orange Goblin are they're a kind of real kind of party band they're a great band fucking great band but they're very much like big riffs kind of stoner rock like beer and bongs kind of kind of vibe you know and they're they they were on Rise Above for many years in the early days you know um and Sun supported them on on a kind of club tour in the UK and this obviously for anyone that knows early Sun like the Grimrove demos and some of the early records, it's very intense, you know, it's, but in, in some ways it's the most intense stuff that they've done. And what they were finding, they were going up against these crowds of kind of people looking for a good time, you know, and they were just standing there, you know, just, but in their jeans, you know, without the smoke, without the robes, without the incense, without the candles, none of that. And Greg said, well, what happened? We started to feel really self-conscious. And the whole point of their music from their perspective was to be reached a kind of state where they're not thinking about what's around them and they're wanting to reach that kind of interior state. And they, they weren't able to do that because, you know, they were playing in a pub in Southampton or whatever and people weren't quite getting it. So at the end of the tour, I think the last gig was at the Camden Underworld and they said, look, we're going to do something different tonight. Why don't we just try performing behind the amplifiers? So let's just put the stacks right at the front of the stage and people won't see us and we'll just pump the venue full of dry ice. And they did that. And that's, you know, that history was made really, you know, that was, they were able to focus on the music and and, and that, was, that was the first time you, you had the kind of iconic sun amps and you know i don't think they had the robes at that i was going to say were they wearing the robes that the <laughs> robes were yet to come <laughs> i think the robes were yet to come but it was interesting to hear him talk about it because it was it was it was um you know it was it was very much he needed to and Stephen o'malley needed to get into that kind of meditative state themselves they couldn't just get up there and do it you know in front of a relatively disinterested audience not expecting their music you know i think the ritual the ritual was absolutely vital i think the reason people connect with sun is because now given how iconic the show has become and given the amount of coverage they've had because of the show and also given the way the the breadth of people that are into sun i mean they they are ostensibly still a metal band right they 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 come from the underground metal world like you know greg anderson's Greg Anderson's still running Southern Lord. They're, they're still from that world very much, but the breadth of, of, of fan base they have is extraordinary. You know, you, you, you go to a sun show and you'll have like techno guys in basic channel t-shirts. You'll have like, I don't know, classical lecturers. You'll have metal, you know, black metal fans, you know, death metal fans. You'll have people from every subgenre of metal will be there, you know, and, and people who aren't into metal at all. So it definitely connects definitely connects with people yeah there's an interesting thing there as well that to going back to the sort of the, the Lamont Young the Terry Riley um, and 
and the Velvets, which came out of that, and where Sunno are. And I, even though I don't really connect with Sun in, in many respects, in terms of time I do, and what, what was happening, I think, there seems to be, I'm just speaking how it felt personally, was yeah. in that period, the reason that, that you know, for, I guess for bands like Melvin's and all that, where it ended yeah. up, there was a period in the punk and post-punk and in that period where um, drone would work, seem to work in the sense that it was a time when people were throwing out, as you referred to, this idea of traditional kind of bands and musicianship yeah, exactly. and, and all that. And all of a sudden, textures became important because we, we, you know, I wasn't punk, but punk bands, they made noise because they didn't actually write yeah. music. And well, this became a texture. Rhythm, rhythm and constant drones and that throb became the way, became a way of making, mu making music and a way of connecting, really. And that, that sort of bridges that period. I was, you know, Venus in Furs is probably my, you know, then getting into Terry Riley and... and yeah, and, yeah. And so there's, it's an interesting connection there, isn't there? What, lots of people can relate to it, I think, for that reason. That, that whole access is fascinating because then you've got, you know, you've also got the power rock thing. You know, so much of that music is, is drone based. Now you've got Hawkwind. Well, I've got to ask you, I mean, you know, I was listening recently to some of the early Cabs records, you know, the early stuff on Rough Trade, and so much of it is underpinned by the drone. Yeah. And what I just wondered about, the, you know, what kind of processes you were using. I mean, I, I understand you were using, you know, tape decks and so on, but what, what, what drove you guys at that stage to want to really connect with more hypnotic sounds and, as you say, connect with the textures? I think it was the, I mean, I think it did come out of that Velvets field in yeah. terms of that, that sort of low end and that kind of, I say, it, when you make music, when you're not a musician, you need to find ways of making it gel. Yeah. And that was a kind of, that was a kind of, that sound, that low end, that continuity was something that held things together. You know, yeah. what, even more, probably later when we got drum machines, then rhythm became the architecture a bit more of what we did. But the architecture of what we did in those early records was that, you know, the the, the low end, the throb, and, and also just the technology we used. I mean, we, Chris built a synth and eventually, Chris was the only one who had a job of three of us. So he eventually bought a, a synth EA, so we were able yeah. to, you know, create some of those kind of pure electronic noises but in the early days you know we were we were using tape loops and so therefore the natural thing that comes out of that is that repetition is that continuity is that thing that just goes on forever and so really yeah. it just became just in the process itself became a way of creating those sounds and particularly in the early days it became a way of we could hang other things off them whether yeah. it was weird sounds bits of snatches of vocals, radio, whatever it may be, but you needed something to actually attach that to. And those yeah. tape loops and those continuous drones or those things that we used, bit fucked up, but they weren't very pure, but they were, that's how we, that's how we kind of like started. So that's why it became part of what we did, particularly yeah, yeah. In, the, in the early period, yeah. What, what, what was it like in, in the studio at that point? Did, did, did you enter into some strange kind of states? Because uh, as you say, I mean, a lot of that music's mega intense and, and very discordant. And I mean, how, how long were you listening to the loops for? Because I'm just thinking, I remember reading an interesting interview years ago with, there's this techno DJ, some, some people may have heard of Ben Clock. He's like one of the guys from, from Berkine. And um, he was talking about his production. He was saying, oh, when I've got a loop that I can just leave on for, an hour and not get bored that's when i know i can start to build a track you know and i was just wondering if it was a similar kind of vibe with with cabaret voltaire did you did, did you guys once you had a great loop did you kind of leave it on for an awfully long time and get into a kind of trancey state or what yeah yes yeah, some of them were i mean if anybody's listened to the eastern mantra the, of the three mantras yeah. which is a very interesting plate backwards is my only tip but <laughs> um, if you want to know, know what goes on there, but it was actually, do you know what, in the very early days when we used to we used to make music in Chris's loft, we yeah. couldn't have very big tape loops because it was the, the we only had about six foot by three foot to do it in. When we managed to get into Western Works, we had a big room, tape loops got a lot bigger and we'd be able to move them yeah. around, you yeah. know, microphone stands. But in the early days, we'd a lot of the time we'd actually just get sounds and bounce, bounce them down. So in actual fact, delay was a big part of creating that delay, tape delay and bouncing, bouncing, yeah. you know, between tracks, sound on sound. Yeah. It was a very, 
sort of cheap ergonomic just way of making those sounds so in the very early days we were we just literally we were just experimenting with sound but <laughs> I, I, I know that point of if it goes on through because really you, you get excited by it. You go, oh wow did you hear that and you go yeah and you go yeah I'll just let it run for about another 20 minutes eh? yeah, just, yeah 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 That's what i love about techno as well is that is that thing of you you know you know when you're listening to a really really minimal kind of tracky kind of techno tune or not necessarily just techno but any any kind of basic you know electronic music and you your brain starts to play slight tricks you think is that there is that little hi-hat pattern there is that oh I'm yeah with that on my own what you know often get that at corsica studios in the, the second room at corsica they've got a fantastic sound system and it tends to be the kind of slightly weirder trippier stuff that they program in that room and just <laughs> Standing at the back there, very often you think, "Oh, what is that? Is that happening?" Well, it is happening because because you're perceiving it. But you know, did I really hear it? See, that's the interesting in, in the sense that we kind of grew up with those, didn't we? I mean, we yeah. would, you know, we would. You just take the room, you know, record the room just to and play back to see if you could hear those kind of. Well, now we can see in this ontology, but then it was like, "Are there ghosts in the machine? Did we hear oh, that? Was that right?" Yeah. And, you know, you know, like you used to sit at night, still sitting at night, the TV would go off, but you'd look at the dots and see if you could hear anything in the static and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting you say ghost in the machine, because Terry Riley in the interview in the book talked about that phrase in particular, because he obviously he used to do a lot of tape music and he he'd he'd play his stuff back and, and hear things that he wasn't really aware of that time around. Also with 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 some some of the metalheads producers, um making drum and bass in the 90s read a really interesting interview of goldie years ago where he was talking about the idea of ghost hits which they when they were building a track they'd sometimes leave a channel really 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 low down on the mixing desk so it might it could be anything it could be like a snare or a clap or it might just be a bit of static whatever it was a bit of white noise whatever it was they'd like leave it on the track but only just not even really perceptible you know yeah. so but it would still add something you know it's an interesting concept that i think there's also something about capturing that net that now that ambient now into into yeah. pieces of music it wasn't unusual for us to leave mics open just because it created another texture another layer it may be seen to other people it was like oh well it, it, it's production wise it's shit you don't do that but yeah. the thing is, it created that kind of just that little bit of grit and dirt in what you were doing. And it gave that yeah. sense of real, you know, like using live reverb or, you do, you know, doing your vocals in the toilet or whatever. So it was part of that, being able to capture something that was just there, that was something in there. And I think that's the drone part of that is to sort of, it is it is the perennial moment, you know, it just exists forever, yeah. if you know what I mean? So it was a way of capturing that, I think. There's there's also something I find really interesting about some of those early Cabaret Voltaire records, and, and also the band This Heat, um, is that there's a very palpable kind of, but slightly skewed dub influence there, you know, to really pick up on that. And it, But it's it's not like, oh yeah, here's a massive sort of dub bass, much more, often much more subtle than that, but it's very much there. And it's almost like, it feels to me almost like that, you know that feeling when you, you're in a club and you're you've gone to the loo and you can still hear what's going on in the main room but it's added to that is the kind of you know that kind of the the, the bass rumbling like the toilet system or something or, or the heating system you, you, you've got it's a really interesting sound and it, it, that that's kind of what it reminds me of it's like dub from down the corridor or, or from somewhere else it was, and Dub was a big influence on us, even in those, you know, discovering King Tubby in the very early days, you know, yeah. was, was like a really big thing for us in the 70s. And we, we you know, we did, we'd go down to, to Hanover Square, you know, in Sheffield, uh, yeah. we, you know, we'd go down to the blues parties when we were really young, quite young as well. I mean, it was a weird thing to do because they were purely Jamaican illegal clubs and, and they were great with us, but I'm sure they were all going, why are these young white kids here just stood looking quite scared in the corner? And they were yeah. looking, just going, yeah, going, there's no beef or anything, but it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's illegal, this club, so shut your fucking mouth, do you know yeah. what I mean? But we used to, and it was just that, that was just an eye-opener to go into those, and, you know, you'd see them wheel big kind of wardrobe speakers in, and into a, oh, literally in the cellar, and, you know, 
So, and, yeah. and that was, you know, it, it, it was that sense of just bottom end, which you didn't normally get because we go and, you know, big venues or rock clubs. But this was like, wow, this is a place of base, you know, and it was wonderful. Yeah. That was in the in the set, sort of seventies when we were doing that, like, you know, mid late seventies when we go and do that. So it was a bit that 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 throb, that bottom end sub base yeah. has always been a big attraction. Absolutely, there's nothing like it, is there? It's like well, I think even now, experiencing a proper big warm dub system is it's yeah. like I used to go to a night called the University of Dub at Brixton Recreational Centre in the kind of early noughties. And it was just unbelievable the, the the sound, the power of the sound. You know, mm. people talk about sun being really loud. Yeah, they are. They are really loud, but they're not as loud as like King Earthquake. You know, yeah, they're not as loud as, they're not as, loud as the Iration Steppers rig. Nowhere near. You know, it's 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 like that kind of. It's ridiculous. You know, it's it's amazing. I, I it's I'm, I I miss it. But it does, and you, it's something you're fu you, you're fully aware of, really, and referred to in the book. It's a, that idea I mentioned, like the idea of if uh, does drone have a corollary. But I guess the twin, they're the twin kind of things for me, and, and I'm sure for you is drone on one side and rhythm on the other, and those are the two things. It's when they marry, and one actually informs the other in a lot of senses. So I think I think those that's where it catches it so much. Yeah, absolutely. See, you know, that's a really good point, and I think that. I was very clear from the start that I didn't want to write a book about drone music as a genre. I didn't want to kind of narrow it down to being, oh, if you've got a beat, well, then you're not drone. You know, that would have seemed kind of ludicrously um, small-minded to think of it like that. And and uh, there's so many examples of, of bands where you think, hey, you know, they're not drone as, you know, in terms of drone music as a genre, but they're, they're drone to the very core. I think a good example of that is Swans, you know, listen to some of those early swans records like cop it's just a wall of thrumming noise and the drone is absolutely part of it you know I, but, yeah, but yeah you've got these great clanking clanging kind of rhythms and this rather staccato aspect to the music as well you've got you know michael gear has got a very kind of rough kind of bark in terms of the vocal delivery you know and the, the rhythms are quite quite abrupt but it's still drone or like butthole surfers are another example you know it's it, the drone it doesn't always have to be this kind of cerebral thing it can be a total bombardment you know it's like i think i talk about butthole surfers a bit in the book it's just like this unbelievable kind of barrage of noise which manifests as a drone in and of itself and Gibby, one of the great characters of music. <laughs> and I also worry about Michael's ears because he's been doing the. I mean, I remember the Swans because yeah. we kind of had the same manager in it for, for many years, seeing them down at Heaven many years ago. And then I think seen him in, in, on it when we were in Europe a few years ago. And he's still, you know, it's like, yeah. wow. You, you're still standing with all that, so he's got so he's got yeah. a good pair of, uh, pair of lugs. lugs on him to get through that. Yeah. 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 Um, I know we're going to start uh, opening the floor up to uh, to a few questions, but in a minute, I think. But um, uh, so rather than rather than kind of keep going on, on there, I just wonder. Uh, I just wonder what where you got what you what you what you what you planning next, Harry? What's your where do we go from the drone? Where's the drone taking us? Oh, I don't I don't know. To be in terms of what what what, what I'm up to next, or just where, I mean, in terms of the drone, the drone is a universal continuum that has always been here. And your twenty six hour your twenty six hour mixtape as well, which I want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, in terms of what I'm going to do, I've, 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 I'm probably going to have a, have a you know have a have a week off and catch up i'm actually looking forward to you know catching up on a bit of bit of reading as, as i'm sure I'm, as I'm, I'm sure it's the same when you release a record you know you, you're so kind of involved yeah. in the in the world of it you know and the you know the the recording and the promotion and so on that you, you know a lot of kind of other reading and listening goes by the wayside so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to just catching up on some catching up on some reading you know there's some being some you know being sent some interesting things but but in terms of the drone it's it's it, it that's what i love about it you know it's the universal constant, you know. Oh, keep 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 going with it. Actually, yes. what I was going to say, we have not talked. We talked about the whole, you know, what you've written about the music, all these kind of connections. But just in terms of the, just in terms of the practicals of writing this book, the, <laughs> I'm intrigued because we're talking about reading and the construction of oh, it. Because in some yeah. ways, 
it's a mystery to a lot of people. It's sort of in the sense that we know that people go into a studio and, you know, they write an album or whatever they do, or they go into a studio and they make a painting. The art of the writer is slightly more mysterious. So what was the kind of, what was the duration? What was the process? And did you end up with three books that you managed, that you edited down to one? No, I, 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 have to, I have to be hyper-disciplined in my writing because I've got three kids, you see, and, Funnily enough, two. I've got a twelve-year-old, um, a four-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And the within the life cycle of this book, i.e., from the proposal to the um, to the publication, actually, Jack and Lana, the younger two, were born. You know, so so this whole book was, including the proposal, was written in a state of total sleep deprivation and just basically just like the only time I have to write is between generally between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So those are my kind of writing hours. And this pretty much all this book was written late at night, you know, and then there was the whole COVID thing happened and, you know, all the rest of it, which was obviously that that was difficult for, for everyone, I think. But but it, yeah, I mean, it's very much a case with me. Of zero procrastination, because I just don't have I don't have the time for it. You know, I just have to just do it you know because otherwise it just simply won't get done you know so it's like almost a case of just right now it's just writing time and just you know just time to get on with it but but it was also it was it was there was a lot of research obviously i know i probably did about 50 50 odd interviews for the book and um i did a fair bit of travel i went to malta to visit this amazing wow. place called the hypogeum when i That's I was going to say, could you ask, could I ask? I highly recommend everyone goes there because it's an incredible space. So went to New York to visit the Dreamhouse. Had had we not have been kind of clobbered by, you know, COVID and lockdowns, I, I probably would have done a little bit more in the way of, you know, being out and about. But, you know, that's that's just the way it goes. So, so but yeah, I, the Hypergym is an amazing place. For anyone not aware of what it is, it's a Neolithic burial chamber. It actually predates the pyramids. Um, it's... Uh, dates back to I think uh, 4000 BC and there's this incredible resonance natural resonance of a well we say natural resonance well I don't know if it is natural it may well have been by design and that's a, that's a whole other section in the book but but it's it's an incredible place just haunting and bizarre so I'd, um, that's wonderful because it's kind of that idea you know we could we will call it the drone here the yeah. drone kind of is the conveyance for, for us from life to death i guess in that sense isn't it because it's yeah. about with the with the with the malta and the sort of six thousand year old neolithic it's like the idea of sound that that drone taking us you know conveying us from from yeah. our life our state of life to state of death so it's kind of cool just just to just to follow up on that point, Ileanne Radigay, um, her records, Trilogie de la Mort, which was a triple album that she made between 1988 and 1991, um, that was quite an important record during the writing of it because it's, well, firstly, it's an amazing piece of music, but secondly, I, I was quite ill with COVID for a period and just while I was kind of recovering and writing, I was I was listening to that record a lot and it's, um, it's, it is the literal passage from life to death. That was her idea for that whole piece of music she was she was wanting to sonically mirror um the tibetan book of the dead and the soul's passage from um from our life to the afterlife so if anyone's not heard it it's, it's an amazing amazing piece of music brilliant and i was going to say also that in the in the idea of that infinity and continuity it begs the question with covid being on did the dream house continue during this period uh, you know well that's an interesting question i think I, I, the, the good thing I, about the dream house is that the the way they run it is that the music stops in the sense that they they power the sliders down every night but they don't turn the amps off so that so the drone never stops so technically they the, because of where they are they're in they're in soho in new york and they're in a how they get away with it, I don't know, because it's so loud, but it's like essentially it's a residential block and they're blasting out this unbelievably loud drone from, uh, I think from two in the afternoon till midnight from Wednesday till Sunday. But outside of those hours, the sliders come down. 
I think I did know that. But it's that lovely idea of it just continues forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna have a quick look. There are there are some questions. Um, the um, I apologise if I've missed any of these. Um, this is one question from Wayne. I agree that the drone is everywhere in terms of music. Who do you think has absolutely nailed it and why? Thank Ooh. you for a great read as well from Wayne. Thank you. That, I mean, that's a that's a, a, a big question, really. I mean, it, I'd, I'd probably like to flag up some 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 like mo modern artists who are doing amazing music at the moment. Sarah Davachi. If anyone's not heard Sarah Davachi, go and listen to her all her records because she's absolutely amazing. And she she works with with relatively pure sustained tones. You know, she's 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 she, she's a relatively um, pure drone artist. Although of course she she does a lot of live instrumentation as well. But I'd I'd recommend going and listen to her. She's she's incredible. So that would be my answer to that one. Um, there's a couple of kind of music questions here which I don't think I can answer. But we can have a first one uh, which comes from Stephen Wood. Is there any particular note that is commonly found in the drone? My favourite is D, says says Stephen, um, but that is pu purely Lou Reed's ostrich guitar playing on the banana yeah. LP. Yeah. And another one. So, is there a particular note? And I'll follow it on with the second one, which is, do you think, which comes from Chris Vardy, do you think there's a particular frequency that makes a difference? Do we have an affinity for lower frequencies that draws us in? Well, I write a little bit about this in the book. There's, there's, there's this whole kind of section there's, there's a whole section of debate about 110 hertz and whether or not 110 hertz has a hypnotic effect and the reason there's been a lot of debate is because in a lot of these ancient burial chambers acoustic researchers have picked up this particular frequency but it's been a big kind of hoo-ha between researchers who think yes it does have a strong effect there was a guy called i think he's called ian cook from UCLA who did some research actually measuring people's brain waves as they're listening to drones at 110 hertz and he he did find that it, it had a demonstrably calming effect but then there's been other you know what the academic world's like it's, you know there's 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 been others who've said no this is utter nonsense and you know snake oil and whatnot so it's I'm I'm, I'm not getting into it I mean it, the, the, the fact is that yeah you do pick up 110 hertz in certain Neolithic burial chambers, but you also pick it up in your bathroom or in a stairwell. But I think I make the point in the book that really any ritual of any kind is all to do with intention of belief. And that's where the power comes from. It doesn't come from some kind of frequency. I'd be, well, maybe it does. I'd be, to be honest, I'd be astounded if it did though. I think that the, the power of, of, the, of, of the drone and any kind of ritual is from the intention and the people. That's that's what I think. But. And the actual experience and, and the context experience. and everything. Exactly. I mean, I, I will say from my part in answer to that, um, I'm not sure about the note, but I'll take I'll go with D if, if with Stephen's one. But uh, in terms of the in terms of the frequencies, I'd um, um, somebody just wrote a dissertation that I uh, that I was involved in that did look at all those healing frequencies. And Richard Norris is Richard Norris is the person to talk to about about a lot of healing frequencies so yeah, yeah, he knows yeah. a lot of these so and it, because sound has become very much a therapeutic kind of tool and, and and that's brilliant we love that that sound's done that but i think i don't know if I, I i'd sound a bit trite if i came up with a particular frequency and said yeah i think that might heal you yeah. um I, I think there's probably bottom you know real low ends around 100 that probably ravage your guts you know somewhere yeah. <laughs> but, but the part, the brown note isn't there the idea of uh, yeah, the, yeah the brown note yeah but, yeah such a, a immense base weight that it, it will essentially induce defecation and there's been kind of lots of uh, debate as to whether this has ever happened at a sun gig to be honest with you I, I can't imagine it would happen at a sun gig I, I can imagine certain like the valve sound system which is a big jungle system that if, if anything's going to do it going to be the valve sound system i think so it sounds slight slightly spinal tappy though doesn't it the no, brown note yeah. yeah whatever you do don't hit the brown <laughs> note <laughs> um i'm just yeah. trying to see if there's there's kind of there's there's not too many more questions i was yeah. i was going to ask you talking of saying something try i was thinking about this before thinking about we you know 
done a lot of stuff with noise as opposed to to the drone and noise is something that that you know is not just seen as a, something sonic so the idea of visual noise social noise and all this yeah. that's the idea does the drone translate so my it was so my questions my kind of stupid questions were we talked about if drone is a place and we know it's birmingham or for <laughs> some people it could be suffolk or somewhere like that yeah but um it's really interesting if the draw if the drone was a if the drone was a book if the drone was a, a painting or a painter i'm interested in this there was oh, some, i don't know there's something kind of william blake no and what? william turner that if came drone, to mind with this that's why i was thinking if the drone was a painting i know exactly what it would, it would be one of tony conrad's paintings he <sighs> did some amazing paintings the idea being that um he was using this extraordinarily long-lasting um film which degrades over time and he was his idea was that he'd, he'd put a frame of film in um in a gallery and just leave it and it would essentially be an incredibly long playing film so it's still playing now it will still be playing until it's completely degraded you know i, I don't know so longer than a bit longer than Bazinski and the eroding william Bazinski and the eroding tapes it actually goes longer than that that's an interesting thing though with the drone because we you, we don't talk of it in terms of atrophy quite as much do we about the, the, the thing actually collapsing or imploding in on itself so that's an interesting another yeah. kind of angle to it as well isn't it jem finer did some interesting work in, around the turn of the millennium with his piece uh long player the idea being that it's a piece which lasts for a thousand years and it's being played where, where do, whereabouts is that but it's, it's some it's somewhere it's somewhere near greenwich isn't it i think yeah and, you know it, it it changes very very slowly and it's going to last yeah. for a thousand years so you yeah. know a lot of people have picked up on that that kind of that kind of uh incredibly long you know pieces of incredibly long duration i think there's one john cage set up many years ago in a church in Germany that's just changed note for the first time in, I don't know, a decade or something, you know, so it's quite a big effect. <laughs> so. I love that, the, the idea of the idea of extending time. And that that is the that is the idea of the drone. As you say, it, it yeah. does invert our concept of time. I've got yeah. one question which is just pop up from Rab Dixon. Let me see what it says. Yeah. Uh, at all tomorrow's parties in 2012, there was a guy lying on the floor with his eyes shut. I asked him if he was okay, and he said yes, but that this was his only way he could listen to neurosis. Do you <laughs> think the drone works better with sensory deprivation? Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, that's really, I think, I think it can do. It depends entirely on the person. I think something that I write about in the book is that, I think I was talking about the, a sun show in the Paradiso in Amsterdam and how I was looking around and seeing exactly that you know a couple of people lying on the ground some people with their eyes closed some people with their hands clap over their ears you know i i it depends on the person that that that's it's i, I wouldn't ever say it worked funnily enough talking about neurosis and sensory deprivation i attended a listening party for neurosis at roadburn a few years ago and it was funny because i decided to camp that year and it was absolutely fucking freezing and i'd forgotten to bring a sleeping bag and i was i was just I had like a little blanket in my tent and and i turned up at this listening party in the morning after a terrible night just you know half hypothermic and it was a lovely warm room and there was a chair you know and there was just about only about 20 of us there and that was actually neurosis relative in relative sensory deprivation i think it was just nice because it was warm but it was so yeah neurosis are an amazing band and i think i think anything you can do to get closer to their to their vision be it close your eyes or lie on the floor whatever you want to do yeah i think that i think i think it probably would have a, a, a decent effect you know they also when you see neurosis live they've got amazing visuals you know they, they bombard you with these incredible kind of head twisting visuals and they have done for a long time so they're an incredible band yeah I'd say whatever works for you you know if, it, if if lying on the floor and closing your eyes works then go for it yeah there you go i hope that worked rob so there you go um that i should i don't know for some reason it just sprang to mind i think in literature i'd probably go dostoyevsky it feels like a drone book somewhere i don't know why um 
Crime and Punishment, I'm not sure. Rothko was the painting that paint, painter that came to mind in terms of drone, just a visual kind of spatial, just get lost yeah. in. That was that was, that just sprang to me. But I digress. Um no, what? We, one, one, one point, one quick point on in terms of books. My editor, Lee Braxton, introduced me to this amazing writer. I've never heard of him before, called Thomas Bernard, um, an Austrian writer. And he Lee actually wrote this brilliant piece on on Bernard's work. And he described his work as being quite drone-like. And I totally understand what he means, because there's no, there's, there's no, um, it's just a complete stream of consciousness, the way this guy wrote. And he's, he's, he's writing about kind of bourgeois society in Austria. And, and, and uh, it's just, I, I won't describe it, but it's just a street, amazing stream of consciousness. Um, and it does have a kind of dronal element that Lee picked up on in his, in his essay. So it's, um, I'd, I'd probably go for, Thomas Bernard, yeah. And whatever happens, I'm definitely, I'm, de I'm definitely deferring to Lee when it comes to literature. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we know where we, yeah, I know, I know where I am with that. So I'm not going to come, come in on, on with that. Uh, I don't know how much time. I think we've got a few minutes left. So I don't, I don't know if anybody's got any more questions. Uh, hang on, there's something come up. Um, in search of sonic oblivion, but does the drone also heighten consciousness? Connectors with our inner self or higher beings. That's an interesting one. Higher beings. Well, I think it. I think it does. I mean, I don't. I, I wouldn't want to necessarily give a black and white answer on on on, on that. I think again, what I'd emphasise all, all all the way through is that it's it's all in the ear of the beholder. You know, if it if it does do that for you then it does do that, you know, there's no taking away from an experience that you're having, you know, it's, it's, it's no good somebody saying, oh, well, it's not actually doing that. Well, it, it is, you know, if somebody's having an incredible transcendent experience, be that with music, be that with hallucinatory drugs, be that with um, a church service, be that with, you know, whatever it is, if it is working, it's working. And I, I'm, 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 so I think all I can say is personally for me, yes, it absolutely does work. You know, connecting to something, something quite palpable, something, something. Um, it's the negate. I think it's the negation of the ego. It's that feeling of coming out of the nuts and bolts everyday thoughts and connecting with something more hypnotic. You know, you're you're. It's a, it's a little bit of a holiday from yourself, which is always a good thing. You know, so. that, that's really that's that's a really interest. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I th I think that uh, what losing yourself in that that immersion and losing the ego and losing yeah. losing yourself in that is such an important part of music. That trance-like state, whether it's yeah. you know people listening to trance, uh, you know at rave rave gigs or whatever, yeah. uh, and to this, it is. We haven't really, you know, I haven't really brought it up, but. It, it is it's the capacity to lose ourselves to actually give up to give up ourselves to to that is actually kind of such an important yeah. part of it it's part of the experience you know and and also um i know barbara Ehrenreich wrote about this about the idea of the thing that's missing in our lives in recent times is that lack of not spirituality in terms of a religious thing but that capacity of human beings to have shared experiences yeah. and lose ourselves into a collective experience which yeah. is why you know all the race stuff works and why the drone continues to work across time is because or that type of music because we can we lose ourselves in that and we experience that ecstatic moment you know not with drugs but with with a pure ecstatic moment yeah. Yeah. i think we're, we're you know as a species we're we're, we're perhaps unique in the sense that we know it's going to end you know we're we, we, from pretty much from a from a very early age we're aware of that this little ride is 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 one day going to stop and that's that's a heavy that's a heavy thing for everyone on this planet to wrestle with you know yeah. so I, I think that the you know knowing that 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 we've only got a little bit of time here is 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 a pretty heavy duty thing and i think perhaps the reason that so many religions place such primacy on the idea of transcending the ego is almost like perhaps a preparation you know a bit of a preparation for what what's ahead and what we what we know is eventually unfortunately going to come you know so 
that's that's what that's what that's something that I think maybe um to do with our affinity to the drone you know as a species we we have we hypnotize ourselves and we intoxicate ourselves and we have done for thousands of years and why is that and it's to 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 remove ourselves from ourselves you know to remove ourselves from the bonds of the ego you know it's a powerful thing and it's almost like it's almost like we're hardwired to do that you know and, and it's it's almost like, and, and this is seeking an oblivion, but in a positive way as well. It's kind exactly of what I mean, uh, oblivion. That, exactly. I don't mean, but we should go to it as well. I don't mean oblivion like in a kind of metal sense. I don't mean, <laughs> you know, I mean it as uh, I mean it in exactly the terms that you describe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it. <clears throat> and, that, and that's it. It's you know, it, it's where where we kind of started off, like the idea of. Of, of these sounds that, that last, they, they encapsulate everything, dystopian, utopian, transcendental, you know, yeah. celestial, cosmic, and that's what it's yeah. all about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll just yeah. see if there's any more questions. Actually, to take us, do you know what? I'm gonna take us, I'm gonna finish off and let, let you riff a little bit on, on something completely different just to take us into, a, into the last bit. Because right. it feels like we've got our own it's what I, I know. I, I I went and saw them, loved them, and everything. The one thing that seems to connect it in an English sense of all the things we've talked about, me and you and everything, Hawkwind. Yeah. Hawkwind. I I love Hawkwind. They're like one of my favourite bands of all time. I absolutely yeah. love Hawkwind. And I, I think <laughs> Hawkwind Hawkwind were a much maligned band. If there was if there were any justice, if there were any justice at all, Hawkwind would be covered by The Wire magazine, for example, in the same way that they cover, say, Faust or Cannes or any of the German bands. They'd be on the cover. What, why is it that Hawkwind aren't put in the same bracket as the Krautrock bands? Why is it that Hawkwind are seen as being this kind of ludicrous hippie band? Yeah, Amundal, who, who were, if anything, far kind of more extreme on the hippie sense than Hawkwind ever were. You know, it's seen as being this kind of very serious avant-garde band. I don't understand it. Hawkwind, everyone should just listen to Hawkwind, you know, as a matter of course, in my opinion. They're, they're an amazing band. And I think the first, the first, um, the first run of Hawkwind records from, I won't say from the, from the first record, because the first record they made, it, just, the, the, just entitled Hawkwind, um, it was okay. It wasn't great. It was slightly. It, they were holding back somewhat. But this, from from X in Search of Space until Worry on the Edge of Time, that run it, it equals Sabbath's amazing unbroken run of quality in almost the same time period. Actually, you know, we take Sabbath from seventy, you know, up until Sabotage until seventy five. So yeah, it's 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 one of those like golden runs. You know, it's a golden run, and and it's. You could, it's unbeatable, really. But also, Hawkwind tie so much As you say, they tie so many cultures together. They they tie they they play with everyone from Crass to like Misty and Roots to um, you know, to like Spiral Tribe. They 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 tie hippie culture, rave culture. Punks loved Hawkwind. You know, like John Lydon was a huge Hawkwind fan. Jello Biafra is a huge Hawkwind fan. Henry Rollins is a huge Hawkwind fan. And it's because they have that primal chug, you know. Yes. Totally primal about yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. And incredible. What, that, what, what they had, the German band, I mean, I'm talking very genetic, yeah. <laughs> you know, very stereotypically yeah. in terms of, you know, as you were talking about Amondul and all that. Yeah. There was just no pomposity to, to Hawkwind. They were oh, they were quite visceral, quite hard. Quite, I loved them. We, me and Richard used to go and see Hawkwind. We loved them. Was it yeah. Liquid Len who used to do all their visuals? It was like yeah. these yeah. dystopian kind of films that it was like brilliant. Right. Absolutely loved them. And it was just so simple riffing, and it was great. And then so you Robert Calvert, who was totally yeah. mental, Dick Mick with the with his, the, you know, so Dick the, Dick the, Dick you know Dick using Dick his Dick oscillators, Dick. which is what we were doing at the time. It was like really primitive, though so it was yes. brilliant. Yeah, we Dave, we Dave, um, Dave Brock. I interviewed him years ago. He told me a funny story about Dick Mick um, and his uh, ring modulators. Apparently, he he got them on the Tottenham Court Road in the early seventies, and he had hadn't got a clue how to quote unquote play them so he just set up and he'd like read the manual as he was you know as he was actually going you know it's um he was but he was a bit of an unsung electronic pioneer dick Mick, yeah. you know he's 
you know, not, not many people were doing that with electronics in terms of just, you know, obviously there was like Popol Vu and, you know, Tangerine Dream and people like that. But obviously, you know, like Florian Frick was a kind of virtuoso, you know, but Dick Mick was just a kind of caveman, you know, just, <laughs> Just, just people with noise, you know. So, to give it a bit of closure, which you, you'll yeah. like this anyway, is uh, the spirit of well, not the spirit. The actual Hawkwind lives on in the Keith from Hawkwind, who was later in uh, Hawkwind in yeah. Cornwall, fixes all our sense. Ben just sense, uh, you know, Wrangler and Creepshow. So, it, yeah. so I've been I've been round his house loads of times, carting machines in, and, oh, and, great, and great, so great. Keith Hawkwind, Keith still fixes. Us and Richard James, I think he does. So therefore, yeah, uh, in Apex Twin and in Wrangler and all that, you know, yeah, all yeah. Our lot, still he's still going. Yeah, okay. still going, yeah, yeah. So there is, there's a bit of a circle completed there. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Stephen. I've really enjoyed. Um, enjoyed yeah, I think there's no more questions. So, um, um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna look, chose, close the little chat room. Um, cool. I don't know if any of these, I don't know what happens with the other guys pop in and tell us to shut they, up. I think but, they can say yeah. goodbye, don't they? I, I think that's it, yeah. But what I would, while, while we're still here, right. to say a big thank right. you to Harry and thank you for everybody and thank you for your questions. What a privilege to be able to talk to you. Likewise, thank you so much. I've really, really, really enjoyed it. It's great. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.